Well, if you've lived long at all, and I would say this is going to be the case for almost everybody here, you've, you've certainly had those situations in life where you've, you've wondered a version of this question. It's just, where is God in all of this? Where is he? What is, what is he doing? It's like your world is just violently shaken and you find yourself feeling alone, feeling forsaken by the Lord. And, and so where is God when life falls apart? What is, why does he sometimes seem so, so silent, distant? How, how, how you answer questions like that, it radically affects the, the whole trajectory of your life. Understand that because the way you answer those questions will determine if your suffering will drive you toward God or, or away from Him. And so some, when faced with questions like that and, and situations that evoke those types of questions, they, 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 their response is something is basically a conclusion that God just doesn't exist. I mean, if, if there's this seeming silence from heaven and kind of the only conclusion you make, then there's, there's really no one up there to speak. Maybe He's just... God's just kind of this uh, fantasy in our heads. So there's others, though, that yeah, God exists, but they, 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 they conclude that he must be cruel. He must be vindictive. That uh, After all, if, if, if we had the power to help hurting people, if we could ease suffering, if we could help people feel less alone, then, then we would, right? So how could God actually be kind and still seems so distant in the face of suffering. Still others conclude that God must be hands-off. Uh, they believe He's real. They know that all this pain really does exist. And the only way to make sense of it is just to see that somehow uh, we have to limit His power, His ability to do anything about it. And so it must be that He's kind of set up the universe like it's this cosmic wind-up toy and, and let it go and then... He's just kind of watching to see how things will play out, uninvolved in, in really uh, doing anything about the messy stuff of life. He cares, but he's watching, see how it's going to turn out. Limited his own power to fix it, to do anything about it, though. Now, those are all terrifying conclusions, aren't they? I mean, if you really embrace any of those ideas, and, and no doubt we have our version, we have, we have those moments and times of unbelief when, when we are tempted to think like that, but, but if, if you really embrace those, you're bound to become hopeless in the face of suffering. If God doesn't exist, our lives are just utter meaningless, utterly meaningless. If, if God is cruel, we can't go to Him for help, for safety, for comfort. If God is hands-off, we're basically like ping-pong balls, or just kind of bouncing around between Satan and, and sin and just this uh, kind of impersonal fate. No, th th that can't be. God, God does exist. He, he isn't cruel. He, he isn't weak. Uh, we, we, we know this, and this is good news that we know this, and God rev God's revealed this to us. But the thing is, many Christians end up kind of choosing an option D. Um, none of the above. That's where we tend to settle. We basically avoid the questions altogether, and we, don't, we just don't face it. When the moments of pain and suffering really multiply, we just kind of retreat and tell ourselves, I, I, don't, I don't know. And uh, God just kind of, it's like he wants us to be completely in the dark about these things. It's just mystery. Now, of course, there's truth to that, but it's half-truth, because we do have the Bible. And God, God has 
God has, to, to, to those who live their lives kind of under the, the none of the above sort of worldview, it, it's to ignore the book of Genesis. It's to ignore the rest of Scripture because there, there are, of course, there's countless things that we cannot know. We cannot know. We're not told about God. That's true. He's infinite. We're finite. There's, there's so much to God that we'll never know. But there are thousands of things we are told about who he is and about what he's like and what his purposes are. We can't know the exact specific purposes of, of, of this season of suffering we're in. We can't know fully the hidden will of God. That's not ours to know. But we can bank on the truth that he plainly tells us in his word. That's, that's what we want to do. So he's revealed much to us about, again, who he is and why he does the things he does. And so in the remaining chapters of Genesis... This is what we're going to see, that what God is, is up to in those, seeming, in those times when he's seemingly silent and hidden um, in our suffering. And so the focus shifts in Genesis 37. It shifts from Jacob to Joseph now. Joseph is, is one of Jacob's sons, his favorite son as we see. And so it's, it's very interesting that there's so much space in Genesis, so much real estate of Genesis taken up in this Joseph story. 13 chapters devoted to this account. Creation, two chapters. Fall, one chapter. Abraham has 11 chapters. But, but, but in terms of the, just the number of verses, this, this, this account of Joseph, it takes up a third of the entire book of Genesis. That's, 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 what is this here for? Why so much space to do it? Why focus so much on this account? Now there are certainly, and, and there are certainly many life lessons we, we, will, we could pick up from, from Joseph's godly example. So there are things you can learn by kind of the negative side, not bragging, you know, not uh, showing favoritism, not showing jealousy. So we're going to see running from temptation, uh, working, being an industrious and, and honest, trustworthy worker, forgiving those who hurt us. Those are all things that we should, should glean from this. And this is one of the primary ways we tend to read and and understand stories like this and much of the Old Testament. But this account is not, is not ultimately or primarily about parenting. It's not about civil sibling rivalries or, you know, kind of how to, how to get out of the pits of life or something like that. The scriptures have things to say about those, those issues. But this story is ultimately about the providence of God and keeping his promise. That's what it is. Not just to help us live better lives, have better families, but it's to show how grace, how God's grace breaks into our lives, directs us, saves us from sin and brokenness that we would never be able to overcome apart from him. This is the gospel in Genesis right here. And, so, and, and this is something that the original readers desperately needed to believe, needed to hear, needed to believe. So do we. They're, they're poised to enter the promised land, facing all kinds of enemies within, enemies without. And they needed to know that God was working all things for good. Even, even what man intended for evil. He was, he, was, he was working. And so God is here preserving Jacob's family from famine that would have otherwise wiped them and millions of other people out. And most of all, it would have wiped out God's promise to preserve that serpent-crushing seed that we've been talking about since Genesis 3. And yet, God was at work. He's hidden at times. His, his grace is concealed, but He and His grace were powerfully 
and presently working in this story. And so even, this is the point, even when God seems hidden, even when he seems hidden, his grace is active. That's what we see in this account. So let's look at some ways that God and his grace were hidden, but very active in this story. So we're going we're to take a couple weeks and look at the whole story. We're just going to sort of begin it today. But we're going to see a few things. That God is aware. God is in control. He's in charge. God is, God is good. And God is speaking. And so even when he seems hidden. So first, God is aware. God is aware. One of the things we keep seeing over and over in the book of Genesis is just the depths of human sin. Sin, there will be these kind of moments where, where God's grace intervenes and stops the spread of sin and, and, and rights some wrongs, and then all of a sudden it just grows and festers again. It grows like kudzu. It just, it just comes and it takes over everything. And so sin keeps swelling, but grace keeps intervening and abounding more and more. That's been the pattern throughout Genesis. But it looks like everything kind of keeps coming unraveled, and God's sort of given people over, humanity over to their sin. But this is what I want you to see. He is aware. He is aware, and he is working in spite of man's rebelliousness. That's what we see so clearly. Even this, this model family it was Jacob who's wrestled with God and God's brought him and humbled him and, and made him desperate for the Lord and dependent upon him. And, 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 this, and so he and his sons, this family's a disaster. I mean, just what we've already read, there's favoritism, there's arrogance, there's hatred. There's this veneer of righteousness that's plastered over this family, but the sin is there and God is not ignorant of it. He is aware. He sees and, and eventually it all comes to light. This family's kind of like, Mount St. Helens before, before the eruption. And so if you've seen those images, the before and after, and every, it looks impressive. It looks stable. Nothing more stable than a mountain. And yet, there's this all ki- there, were, there was all kinds of, of lava, and there's all kinds of sin in this analogy growing inside, and it's ready to blow its top in this big, ugly, devastating way. And that's, that's kind of the picture here. And so here's what we know about Joseph from these first 11 verses. He's 17 years old. You 17-year-olds over here? All right. Nobody? Nobody? All right, I got a 16 and an 18. So I'm in, the, in that realm. But So he's 17 years old. Joseph also, he seems to be a little bit of a tattletale. And it's hard to know exactly to what extent this is the case. But the first recorded action of Joseph in the Bible is, is he brings this quote, bad report to his brothers, or evil report to, uh, to, uh, about his brothers to his dad. And so the, the, the word is typically used of an untrue report, of a lie. It, it's at least some kind of misrepresentation of some kind to, to damage the other person, the person that the report is made about. So we know that. We know that Joseph was his dad's favorite. Um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're your dad's favorite or not. That, uh, but the, the text says that Jacob, or Israel, loved Joseph more than his other sons. That's nice. Um, so much so that he made Joseph this special coat. This is one of, of many colors. You know, Jacob, again, he should know something about favoritism. This is part of his own family's legacy here. But he, he, but he made Joseph this special coat, coat of many colors. It's not the easiest word to translate, and people have different ideas of exactly what this was, but it's clearly a sign of favor, sign of honor. The contemporary English version translates fancy coat. I kind of like that. This is his fancy coat and showed kind of royalty, and so it showed that Jacob was bestowing 
upon his son, his favorite son, Joseph, the, the privileges that were usually given to the firstborn son. And so that's, that's significant. And that leads to this next statement, is that Joseph was not his brother's favorite. They, they did not like him. His brothers, different moms, they saw their dad's elevation of Joseph and they hated him for it. Hated him. Three times, and we just read, this, this word hate comes up. It's, it's growing in them. It's, it's the lava. It's about ready to blow the top off and cause his family to implode. And so underneath what looks like this really nice, big, prosperous family, there is, there is deep, hidden, this deep, hidden depth of brokenness and, and, and sin that's going to destroy this family if somebody, capital S, doesn't deal with them. So nobody else is aware of what's really brewing, but God is aware. You know, in times of suffering, what do we tend to do? We tend to turn very introspective, don't we? We, we look inside of ourselves. We try to figure out why this might be happening. What is it that I did? How has my sin contributed to this? Who's to blame? What, what, is, what has caused this? And so the reality is our vision is very limited and impaired. And so we think we can see and discern all of that, but that's not the case. We aren't aware of what's all in the mix. Our sin, other sin, natural consequences of the fall, God's work, sanctifying work, loving discipline. So, so comfort and help isn't, isn't found by turning in on ourselves and looking inside. It's looking up to God and saying, God, you are aware. So it's knowing that he, he knows, he sees, he knows. And as we look to the Lord, no doubt there are going to be sins that come to light and need to be confessed and, and repented of. The heat of difficulties, it draws those things out of us. That's not to say that our, our, our suffering is, has always some specific sin cause to it. That's not the point. But we don't have to be able to sort it all out. We, we do need to trust that God knows what's in us before the suffering even comes. He's aware that's part of God's hidden grace. That's what we're seeing here is hidden grace. It's part of God's hidden grace in Joseph's life, Joseph's life and in ours. He knows who we really are. He knows what we really need. He is, he is aware. Second, God is in charge. God is in charge. So God gives Joseph these dreams which, which point to Joseph being uh, kind of rising above the rest of the family here, and everybody's bowing down to him. I mean, these dreams are radically, I know we read that, that's, that's ooh, that's, that's got to hurt, but these are radically subversive in that culture. I mean, there were these ironclad laws that we've talked about, of these laws of the firstborn, the, the older always rule over the younger, this culture. And here Joseph's dreaming about not just ruling over his brothers, but even his parents bowing down to him and to the point where his dad rebukes him. You shouldn't be saying these things. And so Joseph, Joseph tells his brothers about these dreams. We're not sure if it's, again, we're not sure of his motives in doing this. Uh, how, how much arrogance fed into this. Did he really need to tell them or could he just, is this God speaking to him? Did he have to pass it on? We don't know. But not surprisingly, it doesn't sit well with him. Uh, if you have brothers, you can understand those dynamics. And, and so even more in this culture. And so his, his brothers apparently already hated him, but the text says that they hated him even more, twice in this passage, even more. Just is growing, it's swelling. They're jealous of him, verse 11. Now, and again, from their perspective, this dream, it's fantasy. 
This is impossible. It, it, there's, there's, this could not, this would not happen. It's ridiculous. It's outrageous. It's, it's just impossible. There, there, that's the reaction the brothers had. That's, that's the sense we should have as we read this, that humanly speaking, this would never happen. There's no way in the world these brothers are bowing down to, to Joseph. But this is what, this is what we see. God is, is in control. He's in charge. And that's exactly what will happen. But it's going to come in a way that nobody would have ever dreamed. And it begins to happen. And the setup is it happens through these quote-unquote coincidences that are going to be coming fast at us. Here on the surface, these things are going to look like kind of chance happenings. But these coincidences actually point to the fact that God is... He's graciously working. He is in control. He is in charge. He, one day, so one day, we see, we read this, Jacob or Israel, he sends Joseph to the fields, track down his brothers while they're tending sheep. But it, quote, just so happens that his brothers decide not to stay in Shechem, but they, they go on to Dothan. Dothan is a very remote place. Um, this is the kind of place that you do stuff where you don't want anybody to find out about it. So, it, but it just so happens that that's where they end up. And, so it, and also, it just so happens that Joseph comes to the place where his brothers had been. He's kind of wandering the fields. And it just so happens that he runs into this complete stranger. And this stranger just so happens to have seen his brothers a few days before, remembered them. And it just so happens that he overheard them say that they were going to Dothan. So, so, so it's just, it's just, it's crazy. All these things are just kind of lining up. These, these random details, these coincidences, these accidents that are happening. But what it's showing, in a in a very understated way, is how in charge God is. It's like in speaking about it in reverse. And so, it's like the account of Ruth. If you remember studying Ruth together, that you see this beautiful providence of God, but in a very understated way. I mean, the only other place where you find this concentration of coincidences would be in a Hallmark movie or something like that. Uh, sorry. But, but unfortunately for Joseph, it's not that kind of story. It doesn't, it doesn't turn out like that. So circumstances seem to be conspiring against Joseph to produce this really, really bad day, which is going to lead to a really hard life, but the Lord is in control. So you see verse 18. Let's see what happens next. They, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. That's where we left off. They said to one another, verse 19, Here comes this dreamer, this master of dreams. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then, they, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Now his oldest, oldest brother Reuben, he is the only voice of reason here, or just pity. Um, he suggests instead of throwing Joseph in, instead of just killing him and throwing him into the pit, they just throw him into the pit and leave him to die. His plan is to come back and rescue Joseph later. But so, so they hatch this plan between the time they see Joseph coming and the time that he actually arrives there. I don't know how, how many minutes that would have been. But now, no doubt, there were seeds of murder already in their hearts. They had probably thought of ways to get rid of Joseph and his dreams and this, this dreamer, and they loved to put an end to him. But, but they, they, this thing comes quickly. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they, 
They stripped him of his robe. That's a very violent word. It's like, it's like uh, uh, taking the hide off of an animal. They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it, probably a, like a water well or cistern that was dry. And look at verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. They had the munchies. I mean, just try to wrap your head around the callousness and, and brokenness that existed in this family. They've just, they've, these guys just threw their brother in a pit to die. And instead of showing remorse or guilt, uh, they, they sit down and say, pass the mashed potatoes or whatever they're eating. There's a Western movie from my youth that I really like. And... In the opening scene of these, the bad guys, they come into town and there's a wedding going on and they crash the wedding and, you know, kill the groom, kill the wedding party, kill the priest as he's reading scripture. And then they sit down and they eat the wedding feast that the, this party was about to enjoy. I mean, this is, this is, these are bad people. And that's kind of the imagery here. So back to Genesis. All right. What's more, chapter 42, we learn, we, in, in chapter 42, we'll learn that his brother, that, that Joseph was begging for mercy. He was audibly yelling, screaming from that pit, pleading for his life. And, 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 and his brothers were still haunted by Joseph's cries, his screams for help 20 years later. And so they, they ignored his cries, though they did the deed, they sat down to feast. It's a chilling scene. Well, in that, it just so happens, another coincidence, that as they're eating, this caravan of Ishmaelites, now that's just a juicy little detail there that we don't have time to explore, but Ishmael, Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael. All right, these Ishmaelites, they come down the road, and this is when Judah starts saying dollar signs, one of his brothers. They say, well, you know, points out to the brothers, you know, killing Joseph, that's, that's, it doesn't really benefit anyone. It wouldn't it make more sense to sell him as a slave. Then we could get rid of Joseph, the dreamer. We could get some cash in our pockets. This would be a win-win. And then we don't have blood on our hands. Because, he says in the text, he says, he is our brother, our own flesh. Oh, how caring, how thoughtful. Um, and so meanwhile, so this plan is hatched, and, and this, this comes to pass. Reuben, who planned to come back and rescue Joseph, it just so happens that he misses that window comes back, Joseph's gone, and he's too late. And so this is how Joseph is removed from his family. This, all of these details, all of these chance encounters, all of this, quote, bad timing, it all added up to this teenager being beaten and bruised and, and now rolling down the road with nothing but this life of, of enslavement ahead of him. So you have to wonder if Joseph replayed all of the details of this, you know, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day as he sat in that, in that caravan on his way to Egypt. If only his father hadn't sent him out to his brothers. If, if only this man hadn't seen him and told him where his brothers were and he could just go home and say, I never found them. If, if only the man hadn't run into his brothers and overheard them speaking and correctly. If only he had been somebody else to come along and rescued him. If only, if only. I mean, listen, when our lives get really rattled and shaken by tragedy, by suffering, these kinds of one, uh, if onlys, they can just multiply in our minds, can't they? 
We can busy ourselves playing out these scenarios of, of how things might have been different. If only that light had been green. If only they left the house just a moment earlier. If only I had gone to the doctor sooner. If only that awful person hadn't come into my life at a, at a very vulnerable time in my life. If only, if only. We all have those if only thoughts, but, but we, have to, we have to take those if onlys to the Lord. Lay them before him. We, we have to trust in spite of all of the things our senses tell us and our perceptions tell us about the way things are. We have, to, we have to trust that God is in charge and is working in ways that we cannot see. We do. We, we get to see the veil pulled back slightly in the story. We don't see all of it. But in this story, the if-onlys are actually reversed from God's perspective. I mean, this is kind of what we're to walk away from this, saying if, if, if only things worked out any other way than the way they happened, everybody dies. That's what we're to, we're to see because famine is going to come. Joseph has to get into a place of power. Every single little detail, every one of these coincidences cannot have been a coincidence. Because if any one of them doesn't happen, not only does the family die, but millions of other people will die. And, and this is the big thing, the entire messianic line, God's saving purpose dies too. And God will not allow that to happen. God is in charge. Now, he is in charge. There's no mention of God in Genesis 37. You will look in vain to find his name. You will look in vain to find him speaking. He doesn't do anything. He's not referred to. He is hidden. And that is the artistry of the author here in Genesis 37. But even though God is hidden, he is, he is at work. He is in charge. He is on the throne. He's managing down to the minutest detail every little thing that happens. All the chaotic things, all the awful things, all the exceedingly painful things, all the tragic things, the things that make no sense. From our perspective, every single one of them had to happen. God was arranging things, not just for the physical salvation of this family, but for our salvation, brothers and sisters. There's always, going, there's always more going on with God than we see. He's always up to more. We don't, again, we don't know the hidden will of God and the hidden purposes of God, but we can be confident in that fact. We cannot know all that's happening and why, but we can trust that he is in charge. All right, so once, once Joseph's gone, the brothers still have this mess to clean up, and so here's what they did, verse 31. They, then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe in many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found Please identify whether it is your son's, not our brother's, but your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned of this son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. Really? These murderous brothers feigning comfort of their dad. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to the place of the dead, to my son mourning. Thus the father 
his father wept for him. Not, not just the normal weeping period, mourning period of a week, but he says, I'm going to mourn until I die. Now, go back to Joseph. We don't know all, but we can just imagine what he was going through during those early months in Egypt. It was, what was his heart toward God? Was he bitter? Did he feel mocked by the memory of these dreams that God had given him? Did he have any hope at all? Was he wrestling with those questions, you know, how has sin ruined my life? Am I a slave to my circumstances? Where, where's God in all this? Why doesn't he speak? I mean, we, we still ask those questions when it seems today, when it seems like the world's kind of conspiring against us and the Lord is nowhere to be found. Where is God when a, a little tiny communication at work, it, it creates huge problems. And instead of a promotion, you get a pink slip. Where's God when you hear about a teenager committing suicide because he's bullied by some other kid who's only known dysfunction and, and abuse at the hands of his parents? Where's God when you find out that one person running late for work caused a wreck that cost you your family? If you're asking those questions right now, and it may not be in that significant of a tragedy, but it feels, it feels earth-shattering to you, and maybe you know what it's like to wake up and look around at the shambles of, of your life and wonder where everything went wrong. You lift your hands to heaven, desperate to hear from God. Let me just say, God is aware. God, God is in charge. And as the story goes on, Joseph's life, I wish I could say, like, it, it turned around quickly. You got to Egypt and everything was amazing. No, for the next 13 years, there's ups. There are deep, deep downs. His hardest days are ahead. And, and, and again, most of you know the resolution of the story. We'll talk about this next week. But just don't let that, just let that sit on you. 13 years. A decade plus of Joseph's life becomes this repeated cycle of suffering, tragedy, loss. Each time things begin to look up, the rug is pulled out from under him and he comes crashing down again with some new kind of affliction. Thirteen years. But while the Lord seems absent, he is not. And it's clear as the story goes on, we're going to see in chapter 39, for instance, Joseph's working in the, as a slave for Potiphar, and, and he, he rose up in the ranks, and we read that the Lord was with Joseph. And when, he, when he's thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit, the text says, the Lord was with him. Chapter 39, verse 23. Through all ups and downs, little light of hope opens up, and then it's just, boom, snuffed out. Through all of that, the Lord was with him. Joseph could not have known that by sight. He had to, if he, if he knew it at all, it was by faith. It was trusting in the promise of God. It was the only way. His perception of reality did not shape his beliefs, but his beliefs shaped his perception of reality. And how is that so desperately needed for us, brothers and sisters? But it's so often the other way. We, we want to see we want to see the truth. We want to see the word. And we want to interpret it through the lens of our circumstances instead of seeing our lives through the lens of, of what God has revealed, of what we believe. So God is aware. God is in charge. And I'll just say the last thing, and we'll come to this next week. God is good. He is good. And we're going to have to unfold that next time. 
Listen, centuries later, like Joseph, there was another one who came to his brothers and he received the same kind of reception. John 1.11 says, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Isaiah 53.3, he was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was also sold for a slave's price with silver and was betrayed by people closest to him. He was also stripped naked and abandoned to die, asking, crying out in the dark, why? Why? Nobody heard him. Nobody came. No one answered. Not even God, his father, who loved him. This was, of course, Jesus. And so, but there, there's a major difference between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph was a sinner whom God involuntarily turned into a lowercase savior for his family and for other people from famine. Jesus was sinless, came voluntarily to be the savior of us all. And so the pit that Jesus fell into was vastly deeper, greater than the water cistern that Joseph fell into. The, 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 the cry of agony that Jesus let out on the cross was, was far more intense than anything Joseph ever cried. His nakedness, his sense of abandonment was infinitely beyond anything Joseph experienced and went through. When Jesus was on the cross, he, didn't just, he wasn't just physically naked. He was stripped as it were, of, the, of his own father's love. Because he was punished for our sin, he endured the father's wrath against our sin in our place. Now listen, when we suffer, brothers and sisters, when we suffer, we, we cannot help in moments to come back to this deep, gnawing, innate, profound sense that every human being has and it's this is that I I deserve some kind of punishment for the way that I've lived I mean we always wrestle with that in some way no human being can shake that we can go to counseling and therapy and do all the bible studies in the world we want but even if even if we kind of deny it and we're sort of numb to it but it's it's there it's part of who we are as human beings when suffering comes we we default to losing our sense of God's love unless unless we see and know this that there is one who was forsaken by God the Father so that we can be absolutely assured we will never ever ever be forsaken by him that there is one who lost the Father's love as it were on the cross paying our penalty so that we can know that in spite of our sinful, imperfect lives, God loves us in Christ. When I ask God to accept me because of what Jesus has done, I know I am loved. And you can too, no matter what kind of suffering we walk through. If you are in the pit today, if you're crying in agony, why, why Lord, am I all alone? Listen, you are not you are not. Now, God does discipline us as a father, loving father disciplines his children, but it's only and always for our good. There's not, a, there's not an ounce of wrath mixed in with it. But you are, not, you are never alone. And that, Christianity is the only religion that claims that God has suffered for his people. That God has gone into the pit for us. He, in Christ, suffered for you so that you would not be alone. You can know, even in the midst of your suffering, that he loves you.
That is, that is what we need, isn't it? I mean, I know I, I, sometimes we think that people who are suffering, what they really need is, they, and they want is answers. I, early on in pastoral ministry, I thought that that's what people, so I felt so inadequate. When I, you realize what they want is presence. They want presence. And, and that's, what, that's what we need. That's what we need from God. We, 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 it's not just, I, know, I need to know exactly why this is happening to me right now. But it's, it's, that's like trying to explain to a nursing baby uh, how to prepare for an astrophysics exam or something like that. I mean, we, God doesn't tell us those things because we can't possibly understand them. He's so much bigger. He's so much greater. We, it's too much to take in. So we don't need all our questions answered. We need to know he's with us and he loves us and the cross proves that he is and the cross proves that he does. So one writer said, we, we, don't, we need to know and not know what God is doing. We need to know and not know what he's doing. So we need to be okay with not knowing God's hidden will and to exactly know why we're walking through what we're going through. We need to be okay not knowing exactly what God is up to, but we also need to know that God is aware, God is in charge, God is good, God is with us, and he's working these things for our good. That's the healthy balance we need. We need to know and not know. And the cross is the greatest demonstration of that. And the table is here to remind us of this very thing. The cross, the gloom of the cross is that God was absent for those three hours of darkness. Christ was forsaken by God in our place. He willingly abandoned his son to die alone in darkness. But God abandoned Jesus on the cross so that he can continually be to us Emmanuel. God with us. He's, Jesus suffered alone so that we would never, ever, ever, ever suffer alone again. That's great news, isn't it, brothers and sisters? And this is what we get to rejoice in as we come to the table in a moment. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray, I pray that, um, I pray for those that are here today, maybe that, that, that feel that sense of their lives just being in the pit and seeing no way out and in trying to discern and decipher what's going on and where you are and how, what you're doing, I pray that they would they would cry out to you in desperation and see, Lord, that you do you do see, you know, you, you you're you're on your throne and you're good and you're speaking even through the suffering, reminding us even today as we as we're here in the assembly as we come to the table, you're telling us. Again, of these things. So use use these things. Use even our time of singing now as we come to the table. All of these things to comfort and encourage our hearts today and whatever we're walking through. And I and I pray for us. We we are all sufferers and we're all sinners, Lord. We we have sins that that uh, we're deeply ashamed of by, and and we know that sin is always in the mix of our lives. Uh, there's no ultimately innocent suffering, and and yet we thank you that the cross has the final word in that too, and we can. I pray that the the the, the mercy and grace of the cross would speak to us today, our our troubled hearts today, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.